0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Incremental Doom. Tonight, we continue the four-part tale of a peculiar pair of aristocrats and the portents that pervade them. Birth was, of course, only the beginning. In this episode, these rather nocturnal nobles grow like a crescent moon, inevitable and still mysterious. Yet one could never accuse the moon of depravity. The Infernal History of the Ivy Bridge Twins by Molly Tanzer Part 2 A Brief Account of the Infancy, Childhood, Education, and Adolescence of Basil Vincent, the future Lord Calapash, and his sister Rosemary as well as a discussion of the effect that reputation has on the prospect of obtaining satisfactory friends and lovers. While the narrator cannot offer an opinion as to whether any person deserves to suffer during his or her lifetime, the narrator will say with utter certainty that Lady Calipash endured more on account of her twins than any good woman should expect when she finds herself in the happy condition of motherhood. Their easy birth and her quick recovery were the end of Lady Calapash’s maternal bliss. For not long after she could sit up and cradle her infant son in her arms, she was informed that a new wet nurse must be hired, as the old had quit the morning after the birth. Lady Calapash was never told the reason for the nurse's hasty departure, only that for a few days her newborns had been nourished with goat's milk, There being no suitable women in the neighborhood to feed the hungry young lord and his equally rapacious sister. The truth of the matter was that little Rosemary had bitten off the wet nurse's nipple not an hour after witnessing her first sunrise. When the poor woman ran out of the nursery, clutching her bloody breast and screaming, the rest of the servants did not much credit her account of the injury. When it was discovered that the newborn was possessed of a set of thin, needle-sharp teeth behind her innocent mouth, they would have drowned the girl in the well if not for Mr. Velan, who scolded them for peasant superstition, and told them to feed the babes on the milk of the nanny-goat who had borne the two-headed kid, until such time as a new wet nurse could be hired. That the wet nurse's nipple was never found became a source of ominous legend in the household, theories swapped from servant to servant until Mr. Velan heard two chambermaids chattering and beat them both dreadfully, in order that they might serve as an example of the consequences of idle gossip. This incident was only the first of its kind. Alas, the chronicles of the sufferings of those living in or employed at Calipash Manor after the birth of the infernal twins, as they were called by servant, tenant-farmer, villager, and gentleperson alike, well out of the hearing of either Lady Calapash or Mr. Veelen, of course, could compose their own lengthy volume, and thus must be abridged for the narrator's current purposes. Sufficient must be the following collection of vignettes. From the first morning, Basil's cries sounded distinctly syllabic, and when the vicar came to baptize the twins— he recognized the future Lord Calipash's wailing as an ancient language known only to the most disreputable sort of cultist. On the first dark of the moon after their birth, it was discovered that Rosemary had sprouted pale greenish webbing between her toes and fingers, as well as a set of pulsing gills just below her shell-pink earlobes. The next morning, the odd amphibious attributes were gone, but to the distress of all, their appearance seemed inexorably linked to the lunar cycle, for they appeared every month thereafter. Before either could speak a word, whenever a person stumbled or belched in their presence, one would laugh like a hyena, then the other, and then they would both fall silent, staring at the individual until he or she fled the room. One day after Basil began to teethe, Rosemary was discovered to be missing, no one could find her for several hours, but eventually she reappeared in Basil's crib, apparently of her own volition. She was asleep, and curled against her brother, who was contentedly gnawing on a bone that had been neatly and inexplicably removed from the lamb roast that was to have been Lady Calapash's and Mr. Velan's supper that night. Yet such accounts are nothing compared to the constant uproar that ensued when at last Basil and Rosemary began to walk and speak. These accomplishments, usually met with celebration in most houses, were heralded by the staff formally petitioning for the twins to be confined to certain areas of the house. But Mr. Velan, who had taken as much control of the business of Calipash Manor as he could, insisted that they be given as much freedom as they desired. This caused all manner of problems for the servants, but their complaints were met with cruel indifference by their new, if unofficial, master. It seemed to all that Mr. Velan actually delighted in making life difficult at Calapash Manor. And it may be safely assumed that part of his wicked tyranny stemmed from the unwillingness of Lady Calipash to put aside her mourning and her being too constantly occupied with the unusual worries yielded by her motherhood, to consider entering once again into a state of matrimony, despite his constant hints. For the twins, their newfound mobility was a source of constant joy. They were intelligent, inventive children, strong and active, and they managed to discover all manner of secret passageways and caches of treasure that Lady Calapash never knew of and Mr. Velen had not imagined existing, even in his wildest fantasies of sustaining this period of living as a gentleman. The siblings were often found in all manner of places at odd times. After their being put to bed, it was not unusual to discover one or both in the library come midnight, claiming to be looking at the pictures in books that were only printed text. At Cock Crow one might encounter them in the attic— Drawing bee-tentacled things on the floorboards with bits of charcoal, or less pleasant substances. Though they always secured the windows and triple locked the nursery door come the dark of the moon, there was never a month that passed without Rosemary escaping to do what she would in the lakes and ponds that were part of the Calipash estate, the only indication of her black frolics being bits of fish bones stuck between her teeth, and pondweed braided through her midnight tresses. Still, it was often easy to forget the twins' wickedness between incidents, for they appeared frequently to be mere children at play. They would bring their mother natural oddities from the gardens, like a pretty stone or a perfect pine cone, and beg to be allowed to help feed the hunting hounds in the old Lord Calapash's now-neglected kennels. All the same, even when they were sweet, it saddened Lady Calapash that Basil was from the first a dark and sniveling creature, and pretty rosemary more likely to bite with her sharp teeth than to return an affectionate kiss. Even on good days, they had to be prevented from entering the greenhouse or the kitchen. Their presence withered vegetation, and should one of them reach a hand into a cookie jar or steal a nibble of carrot or potato from the night's dinner, the remaining food would be found fouled with mold or ash upon their withdrawing. Given the universal truth that servants will gossip, when stories like these began to circulate throughout the neighborhood, the once steady stream of visitors who used to come to tour Calipash Manor decreased to a trickle, and no tutor could be hired at any salary. Lady Calipash thanked God that Mr. Velen was there to conduct her children's education, but others were not so sure that this was such a boon. Surely, had Lady Calapash realized that Mr. Velan viewed the lady's request as an opportunity to teach the twins not only Latin and Greek and English and geography and math, but also his sorcerous arts, she might have heeded the voices of dissent instead of dismissing their concerns as utter nonsense. Though often cursed for their vileness, Basil and Rosemary grew up quite happily in the company of Mr. Velan, their mother, and the servants, until they reached that age when children often begin to want for society. The spring after they celebrated their eighth birthday, they pleaded with their mother to be allowed to attend the May Day celebration in town. Against her better judgment, Lady Calapash begged the favor of her father, who was hosting the event. Against his better judgment, Mr. Fellingworth, who suffered perpetual and extraordinary dyspepsia as a result of worrying about his decidedly odd grandchildren, said the infernal twins might come if, and only if, they promised to behave themselves. After the incident the previous month, at the birthday party of a young country gentleman, where the twins were accused, to no resolution, of somehow having put dead frogs under the icing of the celebrant's towering cake, all were exceedingly cautious of allowing them to attend. This caution was, regrettably, more deserved than the invitation. Rosemary arrived at the event in a costume of her own making, that of the nymph Flora. When Mr. Velen was interrogated as to his reasoning for such grotesque and ill-advised indulgence of childish fancy, he replied that she had earlier proved her understanding that Mayday had once been the Roman festival of Floralia, and it seemed a just reward for her attentiveness in the schoolroom. This bit of pagan heresy might have been overlooked by the other families, had not Mr. Vielen later used the exact same justification for Basil's behavior. The boy appeared at the celebration later on, clad only in a bit of blue cloth wrapped around his slender body, and then staged a reenactment for the children of Favonius' rape of flora, Rosemary playing her part with unbridled enthusiasm. "'Mr. Veland could not account for the resentment of the other parents, "'nor the ban placed on the twins' presence at any future public observances, "'for, as he told the Lady Calapash, the pantomime was accurate, "'and thus a rare educational moment during a day given over "'to otherwise pointless frivolity. "'Unfortunately for the twins, "'the result of that display was total social isolation.' quite the opposite of their intention. From that day forward, they saw no other children except for those of the staff, and the sense of rank instilled in the future Lord Kalapash and his sister from an early age forbade them from playing with those humble urchins. Instead, they began to amuse themselves by trying out a few of the easier invocations taught to them by Mr. Velan. In this manner, they summoned two fiends, one an amorphous spirit who would follow them about if it wasn't too windy a day. The other, an eel with a donkey's head who lived, much to the gardener's distress, in the pond at the center of the rose garden. Rosemary also successfully reanimated an incredibly nasty, incredibly ancient goose after it died of choking on a strawberry. And the fell creature went about its former business of hissing at everyone and defecating everywhere, until the stable boy hacked off its head with the edge of a shovel, and buried the remains at opposite ends of the estate. Unfortunately, these childish amusements could not long entertain the twins once they reached an age when they should, by all accounts, have been interfering with common girls, in Lord Calapash's case, or being courted by the local boys, in Rosemary's. For his part, Basil could not be bothered with the fairer sex. So absorbed was he in mastering languages more richer or than his indwelling Rhylian, or native English, or even the Latin, Hebrew, and Assyrian he had mastered before his tenth birthday. Greek he never took to. That was Rosemary's province, and the only foreign tongue she ever mastered. Truth be told, even had Basil been interested in women— his slouching posture, slight physique, and petulant mouth would likely have ensured a series of speedy rejections. Contrarywise, Rosemary was a remarkably appealing creature, but there was something so frightening about her sharp-toothed smile and wicked gaze that no boy in the county could imagine comparing her lips to sherubs or her eyes to the night sky, and thus she too wanted for a lover. Nature will, however, "'induce even the most enlightened of us to act according to our animal inclinations.' "'And to that end, one night, just before their fifteenth birthday, "'Rosemary slipped into her brother's chambers after everyone else had gone to bed. "'She found Basil studying by himself. "'He did not look up at her to greet her, merely said, de," and ignored her. "'He had taught her a bit of his blood-tongue, and their understanding of one another was so profound that she did not mind heeding the imperative and knelt patiently at his feet for him to come to the end of his work. Before the candle had burned too low, he looked down at her with a fond frown. "'What?' he asked. "'Brother,' said she with a serious expression, "'I have no wish to die an old maid.' "'What have I to do with that?' said he, wiping his eternally drippy nose on his sleeve." No one will do it to me if you won't. Basil considered this, realising she spoke not of matrimony, but of the act of love. Why should you want to? asked he at last. From everything I've read, intercourse yields nothing but trouble for those who engage in libidinous sport. Rosemary laughed. Would you like to come out with me two nights hence? On our birthday... It's the dark of the moon. Basil straightened up and looked at her keenly. He nodded once, briskly, and that was enough for her. As she left him, she kissed his smooth cheek, and at her touch, he blushed for the first time in his life. Before progressing to the following scene of depravity that the narrator finds it his sad duty to relate, let several things be said about this history. First, this is as true and accurate account of the infernal twins of Ivybridge as anyone has yet attempted. Second, it is the duty of all historians to recount events with as much veracity as possible, never alighting over unpleasantness for propriety's sake. Had Suetonius shied away from his subject, we might never have known the true degeneracy of Caligula, and no one can contest that Suetonius's dedication to his work has allowed mankind to learn from the mistakes made by the Twelve Caesars. Thus, the narrator moves on to his third point, that his own humble chronicle of the Ivy Bridge twins is intended to be morally instructive rather than merely titillating. With this understanding, we must, unfortunately, press on. The future Lord Kalapash had never once attended his sister on her monthly jaunts, and so it must be said that, to his credit, it was curiosity rather than lust that composed the bulk of his motivation that night. He dressed himself warmly, tiptoed to her door, and knocked very softly, only to find his sister standing beside him in a thin silk sheath, though her door had not yet been unlocked. He looked her up and down. There was snow on the ground outside. What was she about dressing in such a nymphian manner? But when she saw his alarm, given his own winter ensemble, she merely smiled. Basil was in that moment struck by how appealing were his sister's kitten teeth how her ebony tresses looked as soft as raven down in the candlelight. He swallowed nervously. Holding a slender finger to her lips, with gestures Rosemary bid him follow her, and they made their way down the hallway without a light. She knew the way, and her moist palm gripped his dry one as they slipped downstairs, out the servant's door, and into the cold midwinter night. Rosemary led her brother to one of the gardens— The pleasure garden, full of little private grottos, and there, against a tree already familiar with love's pleasures, she kissed him on the mouth. It was a clumsy kiss. The twins had been well tutored by the Greeks and Romans in the theory but not the practice of love, and theory can take one only so far. To their observer, for indeed they were observed, it seemed that both possessed an overabundance of carnal knowledge and thus it was a longer encounter than most young people's inaugural attempts at amatory relations. Rosemary was eager, and Basil shy, though when he kissed her neck and encountered her delicate sea-green gill pulsating against her ivory skin, gasping for something more substantial than air, he felt himself completely inflamed, and pressed himself into the webbed hand that fumbled with his breeches, buttons, in the gloaming the twins thought themselves invisible, that the location which they chose to celebrate their induction into Hyman's temple was completely obscure. Thus, they were too completely occupied with their personal concerns to notice something very interesting, that Calipash Manor was not completely dark, even at that early hour of the morning. A light shone dimly from the tower bedroom, where a lone figure, wracked with anger and jealousy and hatred, watched the twins from the same window where he had observed two other individuals fornicate, perhaps somewhat less wantonly, almost 16 years earlier. For additional tales of literary horror to unsettle you, click the follow button for this podcast. Incremental Doom. Exponential Entertainment. I'm Edgar.